You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Unlike the song of a similar title, the Motel California isn't a lovely place. A fact that podcaster Jimmy Doubts learns the hard way when he's framed for the murder of an outlaw country artist hell-bent on distancing himself from his past. Jimmy's podcasting partner, Farrah Graham, faces her own struggles as a patent troll looks to put an end to their uncorking murder podcast unless some outrageous demands can be met. The stakes couldn't be higher as Jimmy races against the clock to prove his innocence, and Farrah fights for their future in Michael Carlin's new comedic mystery, Motel California. Identical twin detectives who relentlessly argue about glam rock, a sociopathic cowboy with an axe to grind, an adult film actress running away from the biz, and a mob boss addicted to home improvement television round out the colorful cast of Motel California, a tale that could only be told in the backdrop of a city as colorful as L.A. Readers who appreciate the vibrant characters of Carl Hyacin, the wit of Jonathan Tropper, and the humor of both should check into Motel California, available wherever books are sold online. You can learn more about Motel California and all of Michael Carlin's other novels at michaelcarlinauthor.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to share with you my recent interview with Aaron Boardman-Wathen, author of Why Can't I Stick to My Diet, a book that uses an addiction model to teach readers why diets are so hard to stick to and argues that sugar is quite possibly the most addictive substance on the planet. Before I get into the interview with Aaron, um, there's, there's just a few things I want you to know about authors in general. You know, I'm an author, and I spend a lot of time interviewing authors for this podcast. Um, and, and the one thing that we all have in common is we're all very passionate about what it is we choose to write about. You know, we're very passionate about our work. And if you think about it, you know, why else would somebody spend, you know, hundreds of hours you know, just conceiving of an idea, writing it, rewriting it, dealing with editors, uh, which of course leads to more rewriting, publishing it. And then, you know, if you think the work isn't done after, you know, you published it, that's a, a fallacy. All the time you have to spend promoting it. Well, the reason why we do all of that when, by the way, no one's asked us to do it to begin with is uh, because we're passionate about the work, you know. Uh, the world doesn't necessarily need another mystery novel. You know, the world probably doesn't need another self-help book. And, you know, we hear that all the time, especially when we get, you know, form letters written back to us from agents and publishers. But, you know, we have passion that, that drives us through it. And there's something inside an author that says, you know, the world needs what we have to offer. The world needs what I've conceived of, and I'm not just going to stop because somebody said no, and then we take a whole bunch of our time uh, and bring something to market. So, you know, we're, we're a passion-filled group of people, and this is just a very long way of underscoring that passion is what drives us to do what we do. So when I sit down with another author 
and we talk about their work, the interview can't really help but be you know filled with energy and passion. And I'll tell you right now, as a kind of a, um, a little foreshadowing, Erin is very passionate about what it is um, that she does. You know, I, I'd really only known Erin um, as the mom who ran the book fair at the school our kids went to. And, you know, back then she was still on the sauce, as I like to say. She was downing Diet Cokes like, you know, Hoda Kotb and, and Kathy Lee Gifford consumed Chardonnay at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. You know, but as her kids grew up, she decided to um, do something to get back into the workforce. And she followed her passion for fitness into a career as an instructor and now a food addiction counselor. She's like one of the first ever food addiction counselors. Her take on sugar is fascinating to me. And it, it may actually, after reading her book and talking to her, it makes a whole lot of sense. You know, her, her belief is that sugar is an addictive substance and it has to be treated as an addictive substance. Um, to me, that, that was very eye-opening, and it kind of gives me a different way of thinking about you know, my own diet and the choices I make uh, for myself. So I think uh, her take will, will be interesting to you as well. So uh, I hope you enjoy the interview um, that I had with Aaron. It's got its fair share of pop culture references. You know, Aaron and I actually are cut from the same mold when it comes to entertainment, so uh, have a listen, have a few laughs along the way. This isn't one of those, uh, you know, kind of fire and brimstone, you know, <laughs> uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of uh, interviews. It's actually, uh, it's actually very fun uh, as well as educational. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, and that's to subscribe to the Uncorking a Story podcast in iTunes as well as in Google Play and wherever else you can subscribe to podcasts. You can find us there. Uh, that way you'll be able to keep up to date with all the great content that we're putting out regularly. And uh, if you like what you hear here, please share it with a friend. I make it easy to do so in the blog. Um, also, you know, if, if you like it, tell someone just verbally, you know, old school uh, smoke signals if you have to. Uh, OK, enough of that. Here is my interview with Aaron Borben Wathen. The last time I was at this house, mm-hmm. there was a hot dog truck and a Mr. Softy truck. There's not one here today. There's not one here today. <laughs> and I wouldn't anticipate there one being here in the near future. Probably not. What changed? Is, are you recording this? Yeah. <laughs> I eased right in. <laughs> um, I don't want like 80 people in my house. <laughs> And it's just like the kids grew up, you know. Yeah. We also got rid of the swing set. You know, we don't have we don't have that party anymore. That party's well in the past. Well, we we go. Well, it was, it was we were supposed to have it. We usually had it the week after Labor Day, and that's when my book was due this year. And I was like getting around to like I had the email list like all set. And I was thinking of like how much money it was going to be and how much work it was going to be and do I hire an event planner to run it? Do I like try to you know hire like an army of babysitters or something? And then I was like, I don't even think the kids will care. And so we asked them, and they were like, eh. And we'd already planned on getting the swing set taken out anyway because they were getting too old for it. Um, and so. We just said nothing. And one person asked about it. I can't remember who it was. 
But I think the fact that we didn't post any pictures, so people kind of got the message that, like, we didn't have it and not invite them. So. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, it was sort of a seamless phase out. So you mentioned, I mean, that was kind of right around the time the book was, the book was due or the book was coming out? The book was due to the publishers, so I was in super freak out mode. But um, I just wasn't in a place where I wanted to, obsess about like when everyone's coming and the RSVP list and it isn't that big of a party to throw but it also just seems sort of contradictory to be you know having in-depth conversations with the ice cream people over like you know how many gallons of caramel sauce to bring which would be an interesting conversation or maybe an, an ironic conversation to have given the nature of your book and really the topic of your book, which of course is called Why Can't I Stick to My Diet? Absolutely. It, so, was there, is there, there a little tension there? I mean, in terms of like the thought of having a conversation with the ice cream man when <laughs> there's a book that's about to be published, which is all about, you know, pretty much going up against the sugar addiction in this country? I don't think the ice cream man would be threatened by me in the least because I think he knows he's like got America exactly where he wants it. But... For me, it was honestly most of it was a convenience and not going crazy. But there is a certain amount of, you know, I gotta walk the walk and talk the talk. So I do let my kids have sugar. I'm not one of these people that thinks everyone in my life should do exactly what I do. And I also know with your with your own kids, the more you say not to do something, the more they're like, "Where is it?" Um, but yeah, part of it was that. With, with the ice cream man. And let's face it, the ice cream man can always fall back on selling weed because we all know that's what you ice cream men weed? do. Yeah, that's what they all do. They all sell weed. No one told me that. No? You never heard, you know the song Ice Cream Man by Van Halen? No. It was off of Van Halen 1. I think it could be the last song on the album. You know, David Lee Roth wrote that because, you know, he knew that the ice cream man was selling something, you know, <laughs> besides, you know, push-ups and, you know, chocolate eclairs in the old good humor truck. Well, I, that actually is a perfect front for selling weed because it's, you can move, goes from school to school. Yeah, school, school to school. Yeah, <laughs> very good. It's yeah. a cash-only business. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's good to know, and especially when the ice cream trucks start coming out in the spring. So I've, I've read a fair amount of books in, in my life about kind of self-help and you know, a fair amount about fitness also. I think yours is the first that really takes, you know, the model of addiction that, you know, many of us are kind of familiar with, you know, in many other aspects of our lives, um, but applies it to food and to sugar specifically. And I'm just curious, like, when, when did that thought come to you or, or how did that thought come to you? The thought came to me when I realized I couldn't go an entire day without some sort of sugar and or diet soda of something because it just became one of those situations where if I was traveling or if, you know, it was a snowstorm or something and there was nothing in the house, like how awful I would feel. And it wasn't just, oh, I need my coffee, that kind of thing. But just, you know, you look up symptoms of withdrawal and there would be like addiction would come up. And I was like, that's such a strange thing. It's just like, you know, how gummy worms are so harmless. Look at how cute they are. They have smiling faces, right? 
Um, so it, it took me a while to wrap my brain around it. And then it took me a really long time to be telling people because everyone always just sort of like gave me this weird look like, you're, that first of all, like, be quiet. Second of all, that's funny. And lastly, like, but you're thin. Like, nobody wants to hear that. Like, you're, you're thin. Um, so as far as, like, putting a real name to it, a lot of pushback I've gotten is because no one really talks about it in America, which is fascinating because when I was in my food addiction counseling program, there were people from all over the world in it where it's completely mainstream. Like food addiction is like nothing out of the ordinary realm in the same sense as alcohol, drugs, gambling, shopping. It's in the same sort of addiction world in all other parts of the, of the, of the world. But to us, it's like people don't really buy it. Or they think it's like a weird, like concept but no one truly of the nor have you, you polled like people at the mall how many truly believe it in the same way they believe that drugs and alcohol are addictive i don't think we would get the majority out of 10 people well especially because i mean you're you're kind of preaching about this as you know somebody who you know on the surface would never be a contender for my 600 pound life <laughs> no you know no, I mean, no, there's no, no crane coming here to like <laughs> Pull you out of bed and yeah, take you to buy hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you know it is one of those things where I think you know, just as addiction, like you, you can't look at somebody and say, okay, this person's a drug addict or this person's an alcoholic or whatever. And I think the same thing is probably true for food. Like you don't know, you can't just look at somebody and say, oh, you know, okay, this person they don't look like they could have an eating addiction. Therefore, you know, what are they talking about? I think for, like, I mean, for the average person, probably not. I'm much more aware of what people say now. I'm much more aware of the signs and the little clues than, you know, Joe off the street sort of analogy. But there are a lot of people that have serious food issues that aren't even aware of it. And not just a typical, like, bulimia, anorexia, that sort of a thing. But... You know, a lot of women I know have a huge problem with sugar. Huge. Um, it's a, one of the biggest things with night eating with women is the ice cream, the cookies, and, you know, if everyone's gone to bed, they go in the kitchen. You know, it usually starts off harmless, and then it ends up like this thing, and then they're like, feel bad about it, and then it's like the shame cycle, and then they gain weight, and then on and on and on and on. Well, that's actually follows an addiction model, but they would never like go check into a rehab facility about it because they just think they eat ice cream at night, right? It's like the addict next door kind of theory or concept. But that's a lot of the reason why I was so willing to say something was because I wish I had known about it when I was going through it because it's not... A shameful situation it's just what we get ourselves into and also because it's so easy to do it like I wrote this blog post back in December we were in an airport and the flight kept getting delayed and I was just sitting there and like all these people are fighting other languages and I looked to my right and there's like an entire wall of like candy <laughs> it's like this amazing like Costa Rican um, 
candy company. They have like tons of samples and I could have so sent my 20 year old, sorry, my eight year old with a 20 in there and he just would have bought a bunch of crap and nobody would have questioned it because that's how easy it is to get it, right? And no one ever would have known and it would have been this whole thing. But, but if it was, you know, I needed alcohol, he, would think he could have never bought it for me. Or, you know, maybe the ice cream man would have come by or that's gotten right. my weed. But it's so easy to get sugar in America or any other country for that matter. And so it's really, really hard if you want to get away from it to be able to get away from it. So that's part of the problem is most people don't know they're addicted to it. And when they want to get away from sugar, good luck. You know, more power to you with the birthday parties and, you know, the social stuff and just the grocery store. It's, it's a hard one to crack. So the more information you have and if there's someone you can actually talk to and look to for advice that has done it and that, you know, quote unquote, doesn't need the 600 pound crane thing coming at the, the house to take me to get hot dogs, then it's easier to at least own it. So one of the things that I think you, you bring up in your book, and I think it, 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 you tell me, I mean, it's very much linked to the title. You know, why can't I stick to my diet? This, I mean, you're, you're not proposing a program to follow. You're almost proposing, or you are proposing, a complete lifestyle shift. Because, and I know that, you know, Weight Watchers kind of comes into the, um, you know, kind of the, um, the, the target sites sometimes. But is that because... Like a program like Weight Watchers were, or any of those, I don't mean to pick on Weight Watchers. I have friends who actually are executives at Weight Watchers, so I don't want to pick on them. But um, those programs which allow you to keep certain things that are kind of harmful for you in your body, is that kind of like saying to you know, somebody who has a drug addiction, okay, well, you could just do it socially, or you could just you know, have a little bit, you know, it's okay to relapse a little bit. Is that, is that what... what um, what sugar addiction is all about and, and kind of why you're proposing more of a lifestyle change versus a program change? Yes. Let me just start with the Weight Watcher issue. I lost 25 pounds with them, you know, 16 years ago. I used to work for them. They definitely have some very strong um, attributes to their, um, their uh, they've been very, very good at a lot of things. The moderation concept, I think, is not good for most people. When Oprah Winfrey talks about bread, 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 I want to cringe because I think, well, I, can you, what if you took away your bread, Oprah, what would you do? She'd probably freak out, right? Because she's really attached to the bread. So when people talk about moderation and you can have a little bit of everything, it's sort of like telling an alcoholic you can have bourbon on your birthday and Christmas and then when you go into full relapse and don't remember a week afterwards good luck that's the equivalent of you can have cake you can have this you can have that because when you have when you're really sensitive to sugar like really sensitive to sugar the smell can even do it to you so if we all believe that we can have anything we want in moderation. That's why a lot of people cannot stick to their Weight Watcher protocol. I know it because I was doing it for years. Um, when, in my book, I even talk about how I pretty much was hungry for like five years straight. 
<laughs> because I was always in my point range, but I was always starving. And I was eating nothing but like uh, fat-free meringues and Cool Whip for dinner. I mean, good God. But I was in my point range. It was awful. It was disgusting food, but I was in my point range. And it was, it was all good, according to them. I don't know how they are now, to be completely fair. So their philosophy of like, you can have whatever you wanted, like again, I don't know what currently, did not work for someone that's extremely sensitive to sugar. So my, the crux of my system or beliefs is it all needs to start in your head because our head directs where everything else goes, right? So if we're looking to f- food for entertainment, to solve our problems, to distract us from life, for any of those things, right there is a huge problem because food is supposed to essentially like fuel us, essentially get us from the beginning of our day to the end of our day. It's not supposed to make us feel better. It's not supposed to entertain us. Yeah, it's not supposed to be horrible, miserable, awful, just, you know, pellets like gerbils eat. But somewhere things got really lost in translation for a lot of us where food became a reward or food became forbidden or food became fill in the blank. And why a lot of people, myself included, always gained the weight back, not just because of the hidden sugar, but also because we were never willing to tackle the emotional component with the food. That's the real problem. That's the real issue. Let me give you an example. So when we're upset, when we have an intense feeling, there's always a fork in the road, right? Where we can turn left, go to the bag of cookies, turn right, find a thousand other coping mechanisms. And oftentimes my clients will text me and say, you know, the crisis du jour or whatever. And I'll call them if they can talk or I'll text them through it. And if they can just not go to the cookies that first time and they can sit with it and explain it or write it or journal it or adult coloring book it out, it makes it that much easier to do it the second time and the third time. And then all of a sudden they're not looking to food for that sort of a comfort anymore. And yeah, you cannot undo 50 years of bad habits in a week, but let's just get moving in that direction. One of my clients, she's actually um, an academic in an extremely stressful situation right now. And she was texting me the other day and saying, it's so crazy to not have these huge swings because of my food. I never realized how much my mood was predicated on food. She had a PhD in science. So on paper, she knew it, but could she actually apply it? No, she couldn't. She didn't have the support. And now she has the support, and it's pretty funny because she started doing my program like in October, and then people at her office were like, you look really good, what's going on? And then I started getting all these IMs from them and texts from them, and now like half of her office is, you know, I heart Aaron. Um, And she's, you know, kicking butt. People think she looks younger. She's got less energy. She's thinking straighter. And this is someone who, who understands the science way better than I do. I mean, 
I don't really understand the atoms and stuff that well. You know, <laughs> I can speak to a certain point. She knew it, but she couldn't apply it to her own life because she's still a human and she's still socialized and she still had a lot of bad habits to undo. And when we have those wear patterns that are so strong of bad feeling, must get rid of them as quickly as possible, this works, or this works, this works, this works. It's a while before we find a new path to, okay, so we're going to sit with, my mom makes me crazy. All right, the world didn't explode. Let's go on with our day. You, you mentioned something really interesting when we were talking about like following a Weight Watchers like program where you know you'd, you'd been doing it for a while, you were within your point range, you were losing the weight, and you weren't enjoying life. So is is that almost like a, a built-in destruct mechanism? The fact that you could go through all that but not have the enjoyment of life, and is 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 your program different? I mean, how does your program lead to more life enjoyment while somebody's making these your big changes? Because when you're just on a diet, right? When you're just doing the aesthetics work, like you're kind of, kind of like you're doing, like you're repainting your house essentially, but the actual foundation's really shoddy. It might look better on the outside because you've lost 15 or 20 pounds, but when push comes to shove and there's a, a real crisis, things are going to be really shaky where it matters. So when we don't really understand how to live without going to food for the wrong reasons, like I was explaining to you, like, you know, why I was always hungry, <laughs> it eventually will self-destruct, which is why so many people regain weight, because they've never really broken the ties between their emotions and food which takes a long time because that, that cord is so strong, right? Imagine like I, envision, I always envision like a, a, um, like a ladder, not a ladder, but like a bridge, right? And so for a year, and this is really strong. It takes a long time for all those ropes to get cut. You know, I envision Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom when he, he's got the thing in his pouch or whatever and they're hanging by it and there's alligators. It takes a long time for that thing to really dissolve because with every single time it worked, or we thought it worked, when eventually it does stop working and we're aware of another path, we gotta build a new bridge. That takes time. When we go, jump from diet to diet to diet, we go from keto to paleo to intermittent fasting to whatever the next one's gonna be next week, we're never really willing to go to like the next level of, wait, why do I always have to lose weight? Why do I go to food for the wrong reasons? what is this emotional response with food? Like, am I really unhappy in my life with my husband, with my job, with my sister, with whatever? See, that's very yucky stuff. We don't want to gotch that with a 10-foot pole. So let's just talk about keto instead. Keto's safe to talk about. Let's, you know, go get those strips from the drugstore we pee on and see if we're in keto or not. That's way better, right? That's safer than you know, my mom, I mean, no one wants to talk about their mom because that's complicated and messy and super emotional and super yucky. But the keto and the points and the paleo stuff, that's superficial. I think that is why a lot of it 
we are destined to regain it because we're never really doing the work that really would help and prevent the regaining of the weight. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, treating, you know, symptoms and not the underlying cause. And that's, you know, true with any kind of psychological, you know, somebody is, is having, you know, a hard time and, and they're, you know, just taking pills to, to deal with, let's say, depression, but they're not, you know, working through the deeper levels of kind of why they got into that state, then, I mean, how, how successful is it going to be long term? If the functional medicine analogy that they love to use, that I've heard almost every functional medicine doctor use, which is a good one, is if you go to a doctor and you say your foot hurts, a regular doctor will give you aspirin, while a functional medicine doctor will have you take off your shoe and look at it, and there'll be a rock in your shoe, and they'll take out the rock. So I want you to take out the rock. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But you're not used to taking out the rock. You're used to all these other diets and, you know, cabbage soup diet or whatever is big. And a lot of us are just conditioned to always look for the next new diet. So one of the things that I'm curious about, and this, this is, this kind of springs from an interview I did the other day with somebody who's in a completely, I'd say a completely different field. You know, she is a kind of sex and and wellness coach, if you will. Cool. But I think there's something (laughs) similar in that, Look, I think sex is something that even, you know, grown adults have a sometimes a very challenging time talking about with each other. You know, it's a very personal thing. It's it's a very hard subject to broach without hurting someone's feelings. And that of course is probably never the intention, but it happens. And I think food because it is something that is tied to you know, first of all it's tied to how we have to live. I mean, we 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 cannot survive without this thing called food. True. But, you know, we live in a culture, and, and many of us grew up in, in kind of like little family subcultures where, and I think you mentioned it before, you know, food is given as a reward, or in my Italian family, food is given as a sign of love. And if you're not eating, something's wrong. What's the matter? Eat this. You know, I can't go to, there's a friend I have, I can't go to their house without their mother, like putting a bowl of food in front of me. The minute I walk in the door, and I might not even be hungry, but damn it, if I don't eat or show that I'm, you know, appreciative of that, <laughs> she will be insulted. Yeah. So there is, I mean, is there, is there, just because of, of kind of how we've been socialized around food, does that make it diff- even more difficult for people to kind of really analyze their relationship with food and even talk about it with other people? It makes it very, very difficult, especially with, you know, the, the lady with the plate of food when you walk through a door because to her you don't accept her you don't love her you don't want to be with her you're not a, a gracious guest right to you you're like I got to watch my cholesterol I want to lose 10 pounds before spring break or whatever yours going on in your head I just ate lunch I mean I don't know what you were thinking when you walked in her door so you have this kind of conflict and then also quite frankly if you ate the pasta or whatever she was chicken cutlets or whatever it was and you're conflicted, it's not going to digest well because you're eating it and you're upset on a certain level. You're going to get indigestion probably. And yet to her, if you don't eat it, you don't love her. It's such a binary thing, right? So the food is way bigger than the food. And a lot of us grew up in families. I mean, let's face it. It's probably easier to find families that didn't have this at a certain level, right? Where, you know asking for seconds wasn't a sign of liking grandma's pot roast or whatever and 
when we have this thing growing up with food to grow up to be an adult and be a woman is a whole nother podcast quite frankly with you know looking at your mom and how she handled her weight and if she didn't handle her weight or whatever but with food it's something we have to eat we can't just like go to a place without food because i know like alcoholics anonymous tells their people like don't go anywhere with alcohol so stay away from you know bars at our restaurants and parties and all those other sort of things so when they're first you know sober they're told to basically just you know go to mcdonald's to eat or whatever okay so if you're trying to stay away from sugar where do you recommend we go I'm really asking you for real. Oh, okay. Um, there's absolutely <laughs> no place I can think of you could go. I mean, where, where, where could you go? I mean, every, every place you go, any restaurant you go to is going to have some kind of sugary temptation there. Even like a Whole Foods, right? They still have like ice cream and candy. I mean, it might be Justin's peanut bar, peanut butter cups, but they still have candy. Yeah, they might be agave, but it's still going to spike your blood sugar. It's still, your body's going to see it as, oh, great, she finally is wising up and lets some sugar again. The dopamine receptors are going to go crazy. Everyone, your, your whole body's going to throw a party because sugar's coming back. So it's really, really difficult when you think about it that way. Like, where are you going to go to eat or even get food to prepare at home where you're not going to see it? And the answer is you're going to stay in your house. So, you, so the point is you're going to have to figure it out a lot sooner and a lot quicker than other people with other issues and that's just the way it is for you or the way it is for me because if I go to Staples there's bags of sugar everywhere I mean really I go to buy copy paper and there's bags of sugar well there are you know go to pick up prescriptions bags of sugar everywhere it's everywhere it's the airports you know good luck right but because it's everywhere then it's everywhere. So you just, that's just how life is. You just have to be like, okay, it's everywhere. So, you know, shields up, shields up. So when it's everywhere, it makes it easier because you know you always have to be on. So I know you, you, you wrote the book, you got it published, which is a, a tremendous feat. And I mean, having, you know, written six books myself, there is a lot of time that goes into it. Um, then of course you've got to take all the time to promote it, get the word out, you know, build your build your platform, build your network. You spend a lot of time blogging, um, you know, both through both video and, and written. Um, and so there is there's definitely a passion there for this topic. When when did you realize you first had a problem with sugar? I mean, you mentioned um, you mentioned kind of 16 years ago losing 25 pounds on Weight Watchers. Was that the first time that you realized that you you needed to, to make a change with, with your with your diet? I mean, was you know, did you grow up like, did you grow up obese? Like I can't, which I can't imagine. No. But like, when when did the light bulb kind of go off in, in your head? Well, this is this is what's interesting is I met with my publisher and this media guy a couple of days ago in D.C. and we're talking about like, you know, my I hate this term brand. And what I should do and all this other stuff. And I don't have any pictures of me at like 300 pounds, right? And people oftentimes are like, well, how much did you used to weigh? And I never want to give a number because that might be someone else's goal weight, right? So when I used to be heavier, 
I was heavier. It's, I mean, I'll leave it at that. But I always had this ongoing, like, white noise, I call it, of I need to be thinner, I need to be this, how many calories did I eat? And I, I um, say it's sort of like a white noise machine in which it was always on in the background. And I remember being 14, that's when I went on my first diet, and I lost 30 pounds over a summer, and I lost so much weight that I remember the teachers thought I was a transfer student at first. What, just out of curiosity, at 14, what prompted you to go on a diet to try and lose weight? Because I remember wanting a boyfriend. And you thought that the only way to get a boyfriend is if... Because I know, I remember wanting a boyfriend, and I also remember th- looking at like a, a weight chart, and I was like, I should probably be what they say. Um, and also, I mean, I had, some, I had some baby fat, like I, looking back at pictures, but that was the first time that I remember like losing weight equals attention, losing weight equals acceptance, because I got a lot of it. And, you know, guys that I'd gone to school with for years, all of a sudden were like, oh, hey, look at her. And then girls who were snots to me all of a sudden be my friends. I was like, really? Well, but that's how it works when you're a woman. Like, it's if you're thin, you're in the cool kids club. If you're not, you better be nice. <laughs> or funny. Or funny. Or, yeah, nice is good, too. So, but if you're thin, you could get away with a lot more in a very sick way. So I was always very aware of my weight, but as far as when I truly had a problem with sugar, that would be the last couple of years. Because I always knew I liked candy. But people always thought it was cute. Like one of my neighbors, I remember, she always thought it was so cute how much I loved candy. She said, and you're so skinny. And I was always thinking, I don't really know what to say when you say that. (laughs) And then when she found out about my book and what it was about, she sort of got very competitive about it, which is fine. But... Again, I don't know why there's always this competition with women and their weight. Because there is. Because you can't be too thin. Keep that in mind, too. Like, whenever Oprah got too thin, her ratings went down. So there's this really weird dichotomy with women and their weight and their friends. So if you're too thin, that's not good. Everyone's like, oh, you're sick or something's wrong with you. But if you gain weight, they're like, oh, good. So there's like, you know, there's like three pound range or whatever where you're like perfect weight. But then to you, you're like, well, that picture was really unflattering. I should go on a diet. But for me, as far as when I knew I had a problem, the last couple of years, because of how I would feel when I didn't have sugar and how I would feel when I didn't have a Diet Coke first thing in the morning and how I spent my entire day with NutraSweet. That's when I realized it. So my late 30s. So what, once you, first of all, how hard was it to cut it out of your diet? And what were the steps you took to, to do so? It totally sucked. Totally horrible. And um, the thing, too, which I think a lot of people don't understand about sugar is it takes a lot of tries. Because I can't think of anyone I know that got it right the first time. There's um, a man who I'm in his like sugar detox stars group. He's quit cocaine, he's quit alcohol, and he's quit sugar. He's like, sugar's the hardest. It's like, I can tell you my sobriety date with cocaine, alcohol, I can't tell you with sugar because I had so many, like, start and stops, start and stops. Because sugar is a real, like, it really, it's kind of almost like that movie Inception, it screws with your mind. Because after about, like, 21 days, you're like, I got this. I can have a cookie. 
next thing you know, you've had the entire bag. So it's, it's easy. In other words, it's easier to quit the booger sugar. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've never had the booger sugar. I take it you have. but Well, no, I'm not admitting to that. But, I mean, then the stuff you sprinkle over your, you know, your cornflakes in the, the morning. The, the frosted flakes, yeah. Because especially the stuff, frosted flakes, because it's genetically modified to screw with your brain. Like, so the sugar your grandparents ate was a lot easier to not eat than the sugar we're getting. Because the genetically modified or high fructose corn syrup is made to be as addictive as possible. So when we try to get off of it, it's really stinking hard. And then the, when, the way that artificial sweetener works is it makes things taste sweet. So your brain's tricked, right? All right, so something sweet just came up. Came up great. She gave us something sweet. This is fabulous. Then your brain gets really mad because something sweet is not actually shown up. And it reacts by upping your cravings. So people that have a lot of NutraSweet eat more sugar than those who have the real stuff. It's a crazy thing when you actually break it down because your intention's always, I'm going to have the healthier one, right? But when we do that, it's sort of self, it's an absolute self-sabotaging move. So Diet Coke was by far the hardest thing for me to quit. Worse than sugar way worse than sugar like that four o'clock diet coke oh my god every day still i'm like oh man it's the caffeine <laughs> it's the NutraSweet. it's the ritual it's the noise the you know the way I, my wrist made the little click it's everything I mean, when, when you're when you're talking about that it really does remind me of the ritual you know smokers have around cigarettes totally. you know, they talk about hey Hardest one to quit is the one after lunch or totally. the one after dinner. Yeah, and you know, you, and you and again, you, you talk about the, um, you know, that 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 gentleman um, who who had a hard time quitting it. Oh, Mike, yeah, Mike yeah. Collins, yeah. So, because also, you know, from what I know with people in recovery, it it typically doesn't work the first time. Um, you know, it, it it kind of takes a few times before you really can can do it. Even more so, it sounds like with sugar yeah because there's also the times where you might be quote-unquote good and then something really weird might happen like you're at a, someone's house and they give you the wrong ketchup you feel really weird and then next thing you know you're going for foods you haven't had in months it's like it's like fun Bobby on friends yeah right? do you remember that episode yeah so when we were um, my husband and I on this big trip over the summer we went to Asia and there was this I should have known better let me just preface this entire story with I should have known better they had this granola and it was the house granola and I remember like the first day I had it I'm like this is great and I should have asked for the ingredients and then the next day I remember thinking I get to have their granola in the morning again should have known better by the second night I'm like granola's coming in the morning it's going to be a good day Right. The next day is our last day. And I'm I say, hey, can anybody can get the recipe for the granola? And the bartender said bartender the waiter said, Well, we don't really give that out and I'm like, Oh, that's so great, you're you know, so amazing, it means so much to me, you know, flattery, flattery, flattery. And he's like, Well, let me go talk to the chef. He comes back and he hands me this envelope and slides it over and it's like this never happened. I'm like Oh shit. Right? I'm like, <laughs> got it. So I put it, you know, in my purse or whatever and 
I walk away from the restaurant, I get to our room, and the first ingredient is caro syrup. <laughs> second ingredient is sugar. The second ingredient is sugar. <laughs> Third ingredient is um, butter. And the fourth ingredient is like, um, honey. <laughs> so no wonder I was dreaming of it. <laughs> it was totally like, you know, it was like drugged out. So that's why you really have to read labels, especially when you're traveling, is because you can be triggered by something and not even realize it. Like, like oh, it's just breakfast, whatever. Like, but when there's honey and sugar and, and caro syrup in, you know, in a couple of oat flakes, <laughs> you're having a big bowl of sugar in the morning, that's enough to make you dream of it, right? Especially when you're really sugar sensitive. So that is why people that have to quit sugar end up quitting it again and again because that kind of thing happens. But also you have the mind issues or just the false sense of security where usually around day 21 for something magical about that, day 30-ish, somewhere in that week, where they think I've got this. Totally good. I can have a bite of something. So... That's why usually when I have my programs, I like to do 60 days because to um, schedule that relapse, <laughs> they almost always have. So they can relapse, realize they're not bad people, <laughs> and move forward. It truly takes 90 days to get out of your system. So if you can make it to 90, you're 99% there. And what has happened over over those 90 days? So let's let's say somebody has been able to give it up for 90 days. What changes will they have experienced in their life as a result of, you know, being sugar-free for 90 days? Well, they will have be thinking a lot better, so their brain fog will be gone. If they have any sort of adult acne, that will be gone. Um, sleeping better. Don't be dreaming about granola for certain. Um, their mood, more, more stable for certain. They'll drop a significant amount of weight because of how much weight is associated with sugar. I mean, if you don't, if you cut out all the sugar in your life, and I'm also including bread, like fast-acting carbohydrates when I say sugar, it's really hard to maintain a body that's overweight. I mean, how how much steak can you eat, right? You will feel better, you'll sleep better. If you do anything with exercise, your performance will be better. You'll also be very surprised with how you look at things because sugar, I've noticed, really impacts our perspective. Because when we're like emotionally eating a lot and feeling weird about it and we're sort of in this like shame cycle, it's this whole like drama that's going on the entire time in the back of our mind. When that stuff is stopped, the amount of bandwidth we have for other things is pretty cool. It's a lot, I mean, it's a lot of extra time you have on your hands, right? I mean, I wrote a book with it. So <laughs> you do a lot with it. So after someone has truly gotten off of sugar, people find a lot of things they can do. It's also a very calming place to be because you realize how much of life doesn't need to be this drama this constant up and down up and down mood thing and so much of us are impacted by 
the food we eat and we don't know it because we've never been in a place where we aren't having these extreme foods. So off of it for 90 days, thinking more clearly, um, kind of living, just almost, you're almost painting a picture about somebody whose life has been transformed. I would say that's clear. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the word I hear a lot from my clients. Is transformed. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you then help somebody make sure they stay clean or, you know, as clean as possible because we live in reality, um, you know, after that period of time? Well, they need to truly have support, which is what I, which is when I come in because you still have life. I mean, there's, there's, you're always going to have life, right? Life gets very lifey. And even if you've had a very good 90-day stretch, you still might have 40 years of bad habits, right? So if on day 91, your mom dies, God forbid, right? You still have to manage that without those bad habits, without going to food. So the longer you have you know, sugar-free under your belt, the more likely you are to keep it going. So that's why it's really good to have someone that can help you because a lot of people that don't get it are like, it's just like a bag of Skittles. Like, who cares? (laughs) Whatever. But unless you've been there and really understand how powerful it is, like, I get texts, like, every day from my clients. Like, if it wasn't for you, I would not have, you know, dot, dot, dot. Or, you know, one of my friends friends, clients, they all interchange. Um, you know, the only thing in my life I feel like I, I feel like I truly have a hand on right now is my food because I'm sugar free. Like that kind of thing. Because they have a handle on it, they can say to their boss, you know what, you owe you really should be paying me X. Because for years they took something less. So they are transformed, but they need support because it's one of these weird things where there's not a lot of cultural support for it, and your family might not necessarily get it, but other people who have gotten it will be supportive because it's everywhere. And when your mom does die, God forbid, there's going to be tons of pies at that wake, right? <laughs> it's just because everyone, everyone feels bad, so they bring food. Yeah. Um, and when we have anything that's this life year, and it happens to all of us, we all have stuff happen all the time. We need to really be able to come at it without finding the solution in a thing of chubby hubby. Well, you know, there's, there's food. I mean, there's a lot of sugar in food and you, you kind of mentioned, um, diet Coke before I, I'll, Obviously, that's got fake sugar in it, um, but it is still a sweetener. You know, one of the things I, I wonder about, and um, I, I know a lot of your practice is focused on women, but there's, there's another thing that I, I've seen happening in culture, you know, over the past, you know, 15 years, and maybe called the sex in the city effect, but it's the, it's the sort of the ro- romanticization of women and alcohol, um, and you know, especially where we live down in Fairfield County. I mean, go to any bar, and there's you know, especially in like Darien or Whiten, you're gonna find a fair number of you know 
cougars out there who are tipping it back. But even watch like you know Hoda and Kathy Lee drinking wine at like ten o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning, right? Tuesday, yeah. So what role does alcohol play in cutting out sugar? Well, alcohol is sugar. It's it's, it's absolutely sugar. So when people or women especially are like, well, all I the only sugar I have is wine. I just like shake my head. I'm like, well, what do you think? It is because I mean, there's only three macronutrients, right? There's protein, carbohydrates, and fat. So, what would you think that wine could possibly be when it's fermented grapes? And then give me a blank stare. Um, so, when we're when we women drink tons of wine, which is very common, it's metabolizes sugar. It it's, it does the same. I mean, first of all, it's going to get you a little bit tipsy and don't drink and drive and all that other stuff also it does lead to a lot of the same effects that traditional sugar does but it's metabolized just like sugar it's like traditional sugar and there is this definitely kind of a blind spot in our culture about women with wine like there's even all these studies about how much more grapes they have to grow now because we have how much stinking wine we drink um and it's just, it's, it's an issue because women drink so much stinking wine, but they would never eat a piece of bread. I mean, I was at this um, fundraiser once for eating disorder awareness at the New Canaan Country Club, and <laughs> they passed out, the, the bread baskets came out, and everybody, like, cringed and, like, lunged backwards in their chair. But they all had white wine, <laughs> which I found to be really funny in a weird food addiction counselor way, you know, funny to me. Because at least the bread had some fiber. I mean, a little bit. I mean, not a lot. But if you had to have one of them, I mean, an argument could be made for the bread. <laughs> I didn't have either because it was like 12 o'clock or whatever. But, but the, the distaste they had for the bread, which is also a fast-acting carbohydrate, was interesting because, like, where do you get their health information? I mean, cause just because, you know, Carrie and Samantha had wine and Cosmos all the time doesn't mean that we can, but a lot of women do. And it does impact, you know, your, your, your brain in the same way all the other sugars do. So if somebody, if, if a woman is going to drink, is everything off the table? Is wine the biggest sort of culprit there? Is there, is there something that's better than, than I'm just out of curiosity, I'm just. I mean, if I'm in a situation where someone asks me in a bar, which seems to happen all the time, I'm usually like, get a white wine spritzer. At least you're cutting it by like two-thirds once you add the ice and the club soda. Then they'll go, or like, a, you know, anything with club soda usually cuts it. But then a lot of people will do stuff like, you know, like tequila on the rocks. And there's this whole movement of Tito's, Tequila, like all the paleo people love it. I have never really researched to see why it's so wonderful. They say it's sweetened with agave. Agave is still sugar. It's just not as bad as regular sugar because it's got a little bit of fiber in it, not as processed. It's still all alcohol, which all alcohol is sugar. It's fermented something. Right. So all of it is going to jack your blood sugar, 
which does a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, let's not even talk about the, the getting drunk factor. It's going to spike your blood sugar. So maybe what needs to happen is people need to call the ice cream man over. And you instead get, of, instead get the, of getting get the push the pop, you know, they get the Maui Wowie. Then they're going to eat the push pops. I guess there's no real solution then there, is it? Yeah, maybe they need to find, like, I don't know, other ways in, to enjoy life than stuff they put in their mouth. Well, then, then it kind of gets, <laughs> it gets to kind of the, 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 the fullness of life that, that one can experience when they make those changes. And, and I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've seen you, um, especially on social media, you know, you take some pretty good, good trips, but surfing has become apparently a part of your life. Yeah, and it's interesting because I grew up in California and I lived in Hawaii for a while, but I decided to take up surfing when I'm so geographically incompatible with it living in Connecticut, I'm like, I'm going to take up this ha- the hobby that I cannot pursue currently. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's something I really like to do, and I can only do it like a couple months a year, and that's if I get an airplane. But yeah, no, it's become very cool for me to be surfing. Um, you know, it's sort of a strange thing that's come along. I used to paddleboard a lot, but now it's so boring I can't handle it. So, uh why can't I stick with my diet is doing very well. And I see the reviews on Amazon, which have uh, all five stars. I mean, I think there's anything below five stars. Um, what's next? Is there another book in the works? I'm thinking about it. You know, I definitely have some ideas. I'd probably focus more on the emotional component because that's what I see most of us getting stuck on. Not so much the science I mean, the science part is great and all, but when we emotionally eat, why we hide, what's really going on, because that's what I see a lot of women going through. Because, I mean, and if you want to get down to, like, the bare bones, being in that, being the person who was always on a diet, it was efficient in a way. It served a purpose in a way. It protected me in a way from asking why I was, you know, just sort of like a zombie from The Walking Dead in my life. Like why I was not working, why I wasn't putting myself out there, why I wasn't, you know, going back to work and really being anything but a stay-at-home mom whose biggest accomplishment was getting my kids to school on time. Not there's anything wrong with that, but that really wasn't made me happy. And I, but I really wasn't willing to do anything else. I was sort of in the, I don't want to do that, but I don't want to do this for so long. But instead, I'm going to just obsess with my weight. So it was like, oh, I'm going to do this instead. But it wasn't until I realized the purpose that my weight problem was fulfilling was it gave me something else to do. So whenever all this sort of stuff came together and I was like, what was I, I was hiding behind this, like, you know, and granted, I know I wasn't 600 pounds, but a lot of us who have weight problems, maybe it's an excuse for us not to pursue our dreams. Maybe it's a distraction for why we can say our marriage stinks. There's always some sort of a purpose that the weight is serving, and usually if we go there, it's really going to sting. Really going to sting. So we do other stuff. <laughs> we do. We go shopping or we, you know, talk to our friends. Because if we go there, 
it could mean some major changes we aren't willing to make. And with a lot of us, like, it's not really very comfortable to say, you know, I don't want to do what I'm doing right now. I don't want to be what I am right now. Because when I decided I'm going to, like, be a food addiction counselor, when I said I'm going to, like, write a book, when I'm going to, you know, go on social media and, like, go play with the big dogs, there's a lot of risk there. I mean, huge. And I had no idea what was going to happen. None, right? Um, it could have been a huge failure. Hell if I know, right? It wasn't, which is sort of crazy. <laughs> but I figured I might as well try it. I might as well try because I knew staying in neutral was making me miserable. Because all I was doing was like the book fair at school, which a lot of people find rewarding. I didn't. I felt like I was just filling time. And when I was just filling time in my life, it just felt awful. And I knew that there had to be more to life. So then I would, got really into volunteering at a club we belonged to. Well, that wasn't right either. So it was like I was always trying to find a purpose, like other than like when my kids were old enough to like, you know, go to school or whatever. Then it was like, okay, time for me to do something. And I tried all these things and nothing really clicked. And then it became, well, I should probably work again. And then this sort of naturally evolved. But I'm like, holy crap. Like, writing a book makes, you know, it's so, you feel so vulnerable. Like, you're, like, putting your, your, like, and especially when you have to, like, put yourself out there. It's one thing when it's, you know, if you're writing a manual on, like, how to operate your car. I'm sure the people that wrote the manual for my car don't really care about it, I don't think. But when you're talking about, like, you know, your secret shame or whatever, that's like super kind of raw stuff. So that's like my entry to this whole thing. <laughs> it's like, here I am, you know, stay-at-home mom. Let's, let's see how, um, how much that I can tell you about myself. That wasn't exactly the way I would have ever thought this would have happened, but it did happen, and so far it's worked out. But I took a huge risk given like where my life was like three years ago. If you, if, let's say that we could um, jump into a movie for a minute, right? Let's say we could jump into Back to the Future. And, um, nice uh, 80s reference. Yeah, well, you know, and playing the part of Marty McFly is Aaron Wathen. And I have to be Marty McFly? You have to be Marty McFly. Yeah, um, you can't be Jennifer, the girlfriend? No, no, you're Marty. But you're a female Marty, right? Okay, okay so that's fine. You're Martina McFly, okay? <laughs> Martina, can you, can, you, can you work with me here? Fine, I'll work with you. So you're in, you're in the DeLorean. It hits 88 miles an hour, and you get to go back in time to when you were 14 years old. What would you know the, the Aaron Wathen of today tell the 14-year-old Aaron Boardman? Um, nice catch. Yeah, right? Right? <laughs> I pay attention. What, what would you tell your younger self? Like, what would you tell your younger self who, who wanted to lose weight to attract boys and because you were boy crazy um, I never said that my words not yours <laughs> my words not yours but I'm making a leap of faith um, what okay. would you tell her what would, in, in terms of what wisdom would you impart on her regarding this journey that she is setting herself out on at that point that's a good one I'm trying to like imagine how receptive my 14 year old self would have been to my 42 year old self Probably not that receptive. 
have given my great attitude I had at the time, I would have, I would try <laughs> to tell her to not think about things in such a like way of like, it's all about appearances. And that when we are so caught up in how we look, we miss who we truly are. Cause I have a 12 year old daughter right now and she's in this sort of awkward-ish stage where like some of her friends look like swimsuit models already and she's like, how come I don't? And she's following like my trajectory as far as like height and puberty stuff and all the other mile markers. And I try and tell her exactly what I would pretty much tell my 14 year old self and she doesn't listen at all. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty amazing talking to my 14 year old self. So I would try to tell 14-year-old Aaron about, you know, the chronic dieting and, you know, all that crap. It doesn't work to just try to stick to, like, regular eating habits and stay the hell away from Diet Coke because that 4 p.m. one's going to bite you in the ass in your late 30s. But I also am very aware that when we start out with diets, it always comes from a good place. It's like when someone starts drinking. It works. The first time someone goes to alcohol because they're having a bad feeling, it numbs it. It does, right? The 500th time is when they get into trouble. So I would definitely talk to her about like stress management, you know, other ways to deal with issues and emotions. I would talk to her about, you know, nutrition, not the fake crap you read in Self Magazine. Because that's where a lot of us get our information growing up. We didn't have the internet then. We get it from magazines. We get it from the Today Show. And we get it from each other. I would talk to her about real nutrition. Because we don't really understand what's going on in our own bodies. Because no one, for the most part, really did. I remember, like, Jane Fonda. You know, let's look at her for advice. She's like a movie star, right? Why would we listen to her? I don't know, but we did. So that's what I would talk to her a lot about. And also just like self-esteem because when I think back to like why I was looking for external validation from these like thug, idiot, 15-year-old boys. Because let's face it, like, I mean, you have one, right? I do. Well, you know, <laughs> we have three 15-year-olds at home, one of whom is a boy. But he's not, I wouldn't call him a thug. He's more of a, uh, he, he's a, he's a cuddly kind of kid. Okay, well. Anyway, so but a lot of the ones I grew up with were just sort of thuggy and not that nice or whatever. But why I was looking for their attention, you know, whatever. But that they aren't necessarily the end-all, be-all. But again, when you're, like, when you're a teenage girl, your mind is so warped. It's like, what's important? Like, who, who decides my worth? And it's very rarely do you find a teenage girl who really gets it at that age. Because most of them are just so, like, external, external, external. But anyway, so to answer your question, I would talk to her about nutrition. I would talk to her about, you know, stress management and true, like, building her foundation. Because that's what was not built when the years it was supposed to be. Because I was always looking to other ways to solve my problems or to solve the yucky feelings when I could have just weighed them out. Well, very good. Aaron, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day to, uh, to join. And the book, of course, is... Why Can't I Stick to My Diet? And people can buy it at... Amazon. There you go. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Mike.
So there you go, my talk with Aaron Borbenwath, an author of Why Can't I Stick to My Diet? Hope you learned something in that. I had a lot of fun talking to Aaron, as you probably heard as you uh, listened to that interview. So I want to remind you, you can buy Aaron's book at Amazon.com and also check out her website and blog. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of great stuff on there. Um, her, her videos are hysterical. If you really want to get um, not only great information about diet and exercise and, and almost like this daily dose of motivation, I got to tell you, the, the, uh, the blog, the, the video blog um, is great. Erin has so much passion for what she does and she kind of fuels it and, and funnels it into this, this almost area of like cheeky comedy. I don't even know if she's aware that she's doing it, but I'll let you know that it is, is very entertaining. The website is EWWellnessSolutions.com. So you can learn more about Aaron there. You can also learn more about me and my books at michaelcarlinauthor.com, where you can, of course, learn about my new book, Motel California, which is uh, kind of what I I would like to call a comedic mystery featuring two of my characters that I've been uh, writing a series about for the past couple years. Uh, Their names, of course, are Farrah Doubts and Jimmy Graham. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. That's Farrah Graham. And Jimmy Doubts. Jimmy Doubts, of course, being modeled after my twin brother, James Carlin. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, Please uh, go ahead and go to iTunes or Google Play and subscribe to the podcast. You could also, again, find more about me at michaelcarlinauthor.com. And enjoy the rest of your day. Remember to cut out sugar. Not good for you. Your skin will clear up. You'll lose weight. You'll be happier. You might even take up surfing.